Please stand if you are able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Esther 1, verses 1 through 22. Please read with me the verses in bold. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were sold in, served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zether and Karkas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the, queen, before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Memukin, the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Medea, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say, to this, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king... Let a royal order go out from him, 
and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased, all, pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Don't you think we should give Jennifer a hand for pronouncing all of those? <laughs> and I'm going to invite you, if you're a kid, why don't you come on up here? Um, today is family worship because it's our potluck Sunday, so kids are staying in the service with us, but we've got... Um, Clipboards up here with uh, notes and coloring pages and pencils um, so that you guys can follow along with the service. So come on up and get one. Take one to a brother or sister if they don't come. Well, kids are grabbing things. Uh, good morning. My name is Brad, and I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Sacramento, and um, it's been a while. Um, the carpenters have been gone on vacation. We arrived back from um, northern Michigan two nights ago, and it was lovely. And I heard it was blazing hot here. So we're happy to be home, and I'm happy to be back with you, and it'll be fun uh, to share a meal today and catch up on this uh, Independence Day. It's, uh, it is a holiday weekend. And we are a people who, we, we tell stories. Stories help us to understand ourselves, uh, who we are, who our family is, uh, what our nation is. And so on a holiday weekend like Independence Day, we, we tell stories. We tell stories to remind ourselves of uh, the birth of our nation. You'll probably hear in the next couple of days conversations about a declaration of independence or the American Revolution. Maybe you'll listen to a few songs from Hamilton and uh, remember a constitutional congress or amendments to that constitution that spell out the rights and privileges that we enjoy as American citizens. And in, in many ways, we, we as a country set aside that day each year, the 4th of July, to tell stories, to remind ourselves of who we are in spite of whatever challenges are going on, whatever, uh, however we may feel about America at the moment, uh, wonderful or not so wonderful, um, we remind ourselves what it means to be Americans. And today, uh, be, be, we're going to begin the second half of our summer series that we've been calling Unexpected Beauty. Uh, we, we spent the beginning of the summer in the book of Ruth, and uh, we begin for the second half of the summer in the book of Esther, the second book named for a woman in the Old Testament. And um, Esther is actually just that kind of story. In fact, um, to this day, Jewish families read the story of Esther on the Jewish holiday of Purim, 
to remind themselves of the events that it records, that Jews were exiled, they were under the, the power of the Persian Empire, and uh, they remind themselves that they were, as a people, rescued from genocide, a genocide that was decreed by the king of Persia, and they were rescued by the actions of a naive, uh, maybe not so devout young beauty queen. Um, and in her actions, God saved his people and kept his promise. In fact, he gave them a great victory over their enemies rather than annihilation of their people. And so every year, Jewish families get together on a holiday called Purim, and they tell this story. They remind themselves of what it means to be the people of Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible who promised that they, his people, would never vanish from the face of the earth, despite many epics of struggle, many seasons of suffering, um, experiencing much persecution. And so this morning, I want to invite you, uh, I want to invite us into the unexpected beauty of realizing that to follow Christ is to be included amongst that people. Uh, experiencing the fulfillment of God's promise to protect and to provide even during seasons of life and moments in history when it feels like God is silent or when we don't know what he's up to. And so this morning, an introduction to the book of Esther in three parts. First, two names that seemed conspicuously missing from the passage that we read this morning. And then finally, some reflection on a God who is still sovereign even when he seems silent. The first missing name, Esther chapter 1, begins like this. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days the king Ahasuerus sat on his throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, and the passage goes on, as we know, because we just read it, for 22 verses without mentioning the title character. We do not hear Esther's name in the, first in the first chapter of the book. And you might, so I think you might almost think of this passage, these 22 verses, maybe this will be helpful to you, like that famous preamble to the Star Wars movies, right? Before the movie starts, there's two paragraphs that appear on the screen, and as John Williams' uh, powerful, famous theme song plays, the words in special Star Wars font scroll off into the galaxy and tell you that long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, and then go on to set um, the setting, tell you the conflict, uh, bring you into the moment long before any of the title characters are introduced. You need to know what's going on before the first spaceship flies across the screen. And so if you'll indulge me, let me just scroll a few details of the kingdom of Persia before you as we're beginning uh, this book of Esther. It is the story of a kingdom long, long ago. Before, uh, we need to know what's happening before we're introduced to the title character. You can hum the music if you want to. We have lots of details about King Ahasuerus because uh, he is 
detailed in uh, other historians' work besides the Bible. There's a guy named uh, Herodotus who talks about Xerxes, the second king of Persia, and that is the Greek name for Ahasuerus, uh, which is uh, his name in Hebrew. We know that Judah was conquered in 586 BC by the Babylonian Empire, that Jerusalem was raised, that the temple was destroyed, and that it was Babylonian policy to take, uh, the, to, to take the educated and the talented part of society and relocate them to Babylon so that they could be assimilated into Babylonian culture. And so most of Judah was carried into exile after Babylon conquered Jerusalem. And then almost 100 years later, a new empire has swept across the, the globe. Almost 100 years later, the, the Persian king, Cyrus, overtook Babylon. And he allowed many of the conquered uh, peoples to return to their original homes. And so many of the Jews, in fact, you'd probably say most of the faithful Jews, would have returned home to Israel, to Judah, to Jerusalem. Which means most of the Jews living in Susa at the time of Ahasuerus um, were probably nominally religious at best and maybe uh, probably more assimilated to Babylonian culture, more uh, used to and, and uh, engaging, embracing the luxury and the paganism of the, Perg- of the Persian Empire. And so uh, we, we enter the story in the third year of, the, of Ahasuerus. His dad, Cyrus, had conquered the Babylonian Empire and then publicly uh, humiliated himself in failing to conquer Greece. And so we were told uh, that this failure is what Ahasuerus set out to rectify. He made it his mission to do what his father failed to do, which was invade and conquer Athens. Herodotus writes that uh, Ahasuerus or Xerxes assembled a great war council in the year 483 BC to plan for that mission. And many historians believe that this war council is the 180 day gathering of the provincial re- leaders that the book of Esther talks about. Uh, The king has gathered the leaders of the 127 provinces over which he rules, and his purpose is to rally their support for the mission that he wants them to go on, to come with him to conquer Athens. And so he has gathered them, and he's put on display for them the splendor of the riches, uh, the power of the kingdom, which will be their backing, the, the, you know, the, the machine that's going to support the army that they will send into Greece. He wants to demonstrate to them how powerful Persia is and get their support in his mission and get them behind him in his command. And the crescendo of this great 180-day war council, it, the tour de force is uh, a seven-day bash and drinking party. Um, And it says that when the heart of the king was merry with wine, Ahasuerus, in a clear act of chauvinism, wants to show off Vashti, his wife. He's shown uh, the leaders all of his other possessions, all of the other beautiful things that he owns, and now he wants to show them his 
wife, his ultimate trophy. And so he sends seven eunuchs um, to get her, maybe to carry her in on a golden throne uh, and put her on display. And, uh, she, and, and she's told to appear before everyone with her crown on. Um, and, and the point is that she was another object of his possession. It was uh, something for him to put on display, and he was going to objectify her in front of a room full of other drunken men that would gawk at her and be jealous of him. And she refuses. She refused, and yes, she embarrassed an intoxicated king in front of his drinking buddies, but she refused and in fact undermined 180 days of work demonstrating how powerful this king was. Uh, He was whining and dining heads of state, and in her refusal, she undercut the, quote, most powerful man in the world. And he, we're told, was furious. And she was done. Done being queen. And this is the setting. The music is fading a little bit now, right? This is the setting into which Esther will walk as the new queen of Persia. There's a second name that's missing from chapter 1 of Esther. Actually, there is a second name that is conspicuously missing from the entire book of Esther. Yahweh, the name, the Old Testament name for God. In fact, uh, there is no mention of Yahweh. There isn't even any mention of the generic title for God. The Old Testament title, which is uh, Elohim, does not appear in the book of Esther. The first chapter of Esther is dedicated to describing the power and beauty and attractiveness, not of God, but of the pagan Persian empire where the Jews find themselves in exile. I can relate. I think we can relate to what it might have been like to be a Jewish exile in Susa. The power and the beauty of a pagan empire intensely visible and on display all around. They were constantly being exposed to uh, Persian military might. They, they saw and were tempted by uh, the, the opulent wealth of the cultural elite around them. They were under constant pressure to fit in and to assimilate into a pagan culture. It had to be similar to the constant bombardment that we experience in advertising and in social media and in entertainment, encouraging us towards a worldview that doesn't need God, a worldview that celebrates self-creation, that laments injustice but doesn't acknowledge sin, that uh, a worldview that holds love up as an ultimate truth but rejects any sort of definition or objective definition of what love is. Sometimes it can seem like it would be so much easier just to fit in, just to give up some of the uncomfortable parts of what it means to follow Jesus, the parts about denying the desires of our flesh or living self-sacrificially or admitting that we're sinners that need to be forgiven, that need a Savior. If we could kind of wash some of those uncomfortable things away, it might be easier to fit in. 
And what really makes it hard is that these messages can seem so loud and important and so influential and everywhere around us, and God can seem so absent and so silent. He doesn't seem to operate like he once did. You can imagine being a Jew and Susa saying, the stories that my people tell say that he split the Red Sea. The stories that my people tell say that he did miraculous things to feed us in the wilderness. And he doesn't seem to operate that, mo- that way anymore. And so sometimes the temptation is to assimilate and sometimes the temptation is to despair. To feel like giving up hope that Jesus' name will ever be vindicated in the world. That his power will truly overcome the beauty and the promise and the vision of advertisers and influencers and social ideologies that seem to be shaping the conversation while God seems silent. And into that temptation, that twofold temptation to assimilate or despair, um, the book of Esther offers two subtle but profound responses. First, the book of Esther mocks the claims of power and worldly empires. The book of Esther is a satire. I, I, I appreciated the tone with which you read, uh, Jenny, because I think that's the tone that Esther was uh, written in. Uh, and by satirizing the power of the Persian Empire, the book of Esther disarms them and cuts them down to size. And the, and the book of Esther shows again and again that even when God seems silent, he is at work, often in modes that we don't expect, using people that don't intend to be used by God in circumstances that seem to have no notion of him. To keep, he uses those circumstances to keep his promises and to care for his people. Just a couple examples from our text today. Uh, whether you love them or not, Um, We're familiar with satire, late night talk show hosts, uh, comedians, sketch shows like Saturday Night Live. You can love them, you can hate them, but they, they can play an important role in culture because they make fun of the powerful. They satirize and point out how ridiculous some of the things that are being made so much of really are and how human the powerful people really are. Sometimes comedians can speak truth to power in a way that no one else can. The case in point in our current cultural moment is a Ukrainian president who was a television comedian uh, critiquing corrupt power in Ukraine. I love the book of Esther and I would totally recommend and encourage that if you've never sat down and read it from uh, start to finish, it's good. It's an exciting story. It's short. It's only 10 chapters. And uh, It's full of twists and turns. It's full of breathtaking reversals. And in my opinion, it's one of the most enjoyable and readable stories in the Old Testament. But it doesn't come off as overtly Christian. It doesn't come off as overtly religious at all. In fact, um, what it does do is subtly and constantly make fun of earthly power while constantly demonstrating who God is. The one the Jews call Yahweh keeps his promises and is in control of things even though his name is never mentioned. Even when he seems silent, he is still sovereign. Let's 
Let's look at uh, the satire in chapter 1, and then we'll close. It says that when Vashti refused to appear at the king's command, rather, rather than taking time away from his guests to go um, work through a conflict with his wife, the all-powerful king of Persia calls together seven princes from the seven provinces of Persia and Medea to help him decide what kind of law or edict he should make to win the conflict he's having with his wife. And this work is urgent. These other important men uh, realize how urgent this work is because uh, if word gets out that the wife of the king can say no to him, then pretty soon every other guy's wife is going to think that they can say no to their husbands as well. And so they need to make a law and an edict that Vashti can never again be allowed to come back before the king, which, note, is what she did not want to do anyway. <laughs> and to give her royal position to someone who is, quote, better than her. You'll have to wait over the next few weeks and see how this story unfolds to see how in an effort to, make a, to find a more perfect trophy wife, Ahasuerus actually succeeds in finding someone who is, quote, better than Vashti, better than her, at defying his authority and getting what she wants. <laughs> but for the time being, suffice to say that in an effort to demonstrate the king's authority to everyone in his power and support their own chauvinism, Ahasuerus and his seven wise men essentially succeed in doing what they fear will happen. They said, if people hear about this, then all, uh, every, every household and every husband will be undermined in the kingdom. And so their solution is to publish an announcement in every language, that the, in every language of the empire, telling everyone how the king doesn't have authority in his own household. This is the sort of satire that's loaded in the book of Esther. None of this, I don't think, would have seemed remotely important to the average Jew living in Persia. All of this is lifestyles of the rich and famous. Maybe if you pick up a People magazine, you read about this a little bit, but it doesn't really affect, you know, your day-to-day -day life and how much figs cost in the market. But by the time this story is through, it will be clear that God, the God Yahweh who was never named, was intricately, intricately working through all of these details to carry out a plan to save his people. God knew of the, of the coming plans of genocide, and he knits together a story so beautiful, a story so stunning that his people will continue to tell it to one another for thousands of years. Let me encourage you in two ways this morning. First, even when God seems silent, he is still sovereign. He's still in control, working all things to the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Don't assimilate. Don't let social media be your authority. Don't let a political ideology be your authority. Don't let uh, this day's newsreel have authority over your day today. Let Scripture, let the Word of God be your authority. 
If you're not a follower of Jesus yet, don't stop seeking truth. Don't stop looking at who Jesus is and what he claims. Don't stop trying to define what love is. Don't stop pursuing faith. Several thousand years from now, the most powerful influencers and influences of our culture will look as silly and self-defeating as an edict from Ahasuerus to every province of Persia. Second, when you're discouraged, when you can't understand why God would let things continue on the track that, you're, that they're on, when you wish he would part the Red Sea for you and show up in a big way and do fantastic things, remember that he can do those things. He does do those things for his people. And yet, Jesus said that most often, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It starts off tiny and hidden and may even seem to disappear. But it grows and it overcomes and it always achieves its purpose. Case in point. The Bible tells another story of a king who held a banquet to showcase his power. It wasn't in a palace. It was in an upper room. It wasn't 180 days long. It was just a few short hours on a night before he knew that he would die. There wasn't seven days of drinking. In fact, we're told only about one cup. But it was the cup of a new covenant, a new relationship between humanity and God because of this king. He wasn't rallying 127 governors of the, of the provinces to defeat Greece. He was telling 12 guys and probably a few women that he was going to defeat death. My friends, on an afternoon in history that God seemed so far away that Jesus Christ, his son, cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The day in history that God seemed most silent was actually the day that he achieved his greatest victory. The day uh, that when Christ said, it is finished, sin was forgiven, death was defeated, and a relationship between God and humanity was restored. 